Remain standing for our epistle lesson in Romans 7. I'm going to start in verse 21, read to the end of the chapter, and you can see the translation I'm reading from your handout. Listen to God's inerrant word. I find then this law. When I want to do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner person. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin that is in my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this dead body? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then in my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but in my flesh to the law of sin. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Please bless us, God, as we consider your word that you inspired, that your spirit breathed. And we pray that you would send us the same spirit who wrote these words in our midst and in our hearts so that we can believe what you have to say, so that we can be doers of this word from you. And we confess at the outset that we need your help in trusting and obeying. And so accomplish that in us, we pray, for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. In the 15th century, about 100 years before the Protestant Reformation, a man named Thomas Akempis penned a prayer that echoes Paul's struggle in Romans 7. Thomas Akempis was a, a devotional writer, theologian, who wrote, famously wrote the Imitation of Christ, and he wrote these words to God in a prayer. I desire to enjoy thee inwardly, but I cannot Take thee. I desire to cleave to heavenly things, but fleshly things and unmortified passions depress me. I will in my mind, I will in my mind to be above all things, but in spite of myself, I am constrained to be beneath. So I, unhappy man, fight with myself and I am made grievous to myself. Oh, what I suffer within. As I think on heavenly things in my mind, the company of fleshly things cometh against me when I pray. So even in his prayers, Thomas was fighting this lifelong battle. And if you can identify with these words, it means you've entered into the fight yourself, the fight for holiness which means you're a born-again Christian. Thomas Akempis and the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 express the struggle inside of all true believers. How often we want to trust and obey God. How often we want to follow Christ in obedience. How often we desire heavenly things rather than fleshly passions, how often we long to glorify God, how often we yearn in our inner person to kill sin and to produce spiritual fruit, and yet how often we are pulled down by our flesh and fall short of the glory of God. 
Romans 7 is one of the most personal passages and perhaps the most poignant passage in Paul, all of Paul's letters. The second half of this chapter is a, is a window into Paul's inner life. And what we see when we look through this window, that is Romans 7, 15 to 25, is a conflict between Paul's new nature and his old sinful nature. His new nature in Christ, his old nature in Adam. But Paul isn't just interested in giving us a peek into his inner life. He's not just letting us read his diary. No, he writes this down in his letter to the Romans to teach them and to teach us how to think about the sin that still lives and wreaks havoc in believers. So today we consider the last five verses of this chapter of Romans 7. And Paul concludes his discussion. As you can see from your outline, he concludes by explaining every Christian's experience of conflict, captivity, and crisis. Then he provides hope. So it doesn't end with the crisis. He provides hope and tells us where to find consolation, where, where, where we go to get comfort, gospel comfort in our moments of crisis. And finally, he reminds us that the conflict continues until death. The war within never ceases in this life. It will cease in the life to come, but not in this life. If you've, if you've experienced the new birth, if you've been born again of God, if the Holy Spirit has given new life, new birth to your spirit, then this lifelong struggle that Paul is talking about, that Thomas Akempis prays about, this lifelong struggle defines your inner life as well, even as it did the Apostle Paul's. You can expect to experience on and, and on, ongoing cycles of conflict, captivity, crisis, and consolation. And each time you go through this cycle, as you spiral upward, you can expect it to bring you closer to God and further away from sin. Each time through the cycle, you should look more like your Savior and less like your old self. More like your future self and less like your old self. First, Paul explains the conflict in verses 21 to 23. I find then this law, when I want to do good, evil is present with me. We might translate that in me. For I delight in the law of God in my inner person. But I see another law in my members Warring against the law of my mind. Waging war is the idea there. Fierce war against the law of my mind. Against the law of his saved, regenerated mind that's been, new, that's been born again in Christ. We're reminded in verse 22 of what we established at length a couple of weeks ago. I think it was two weeks ago. We established that Paul is writing about his experience as a Christian. Paul can't be talking about the experience of a non-Christian because unbelievers don't actually delight in God's law at the, at the core of their being. 
But Paul says he does in verse 22 in the present tense. I delight in the law of God in my inner person. So this is Paul writing as a Christian, as the author of Romans. When Paul says he delights in God's law in his inner man, he doesn't mean he delights in looking at the laws of God written on the pages of Scripture or talking about them in an academic way and making cool connections with other places in Scripture. No, Paul's delight is in obeying God's law. That's what he's ultimately talking about here, in doing God's will. And his delight goes, this delight that he's talking about goes all the way down to his innermost self. That's what the language is getting at here. In my inner being, inner person, inner man, the deepest part of me, my truest self. We need to remember always that it's impossible to truly delight in God's law if you are not a doer of God's law. It's impossible to say that you delight in God's law if you are not doing God's law. If the word of God is truly the joy of your heart, the scripture says you will incline your heart then to do what God says. Those two things go together. You can't divorce them. The psalmist says in Psalm 119 in verses 111 and 112, if you want to write that down, if you're taking notes, it's a good one to go back and meditate on. Psalm 119 Verse 111 and 112. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. So there in verse 11, he's saying, I love your law. My heart loves your law. They're my heritage. Verse 112. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. You see, these two things go together. You can't have one without the other. It's not enough to have a soft, spark, a soft spot in your heart for God's law or something like that. It's not enough to call yourself a lover of the law of God. Go God's law. It's, it, the, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. If you actually love God's law, then you will incline your heart to obey it. When Paul became a Christian, God planted a new dominant desire inside of Paul. And this new desire was to love and obey God's law. Now, if you had asked Paul, Saul, the Pharisee, do you love God's law? Of course he would have said yes. But later, after he became a Christian, he realized he didn't love God's law. He didn't even understand what God's law was all about. He thought he was a doer of God's law. He didn't realize how wretched he was. But now he does. And now he has a genuine desire for God's law, for God and his law to do it. And because God <clears throat> inclined Paul's heart to perform God's statutes forever. You know, Paul inclined his own heart. We could say it that way. That's the way the psalm puts it. But we also know that behind that, God inclined Paul's heart to perform God's statutes forever to the end. Do you have a new dominant desire, a new controlling delight inside of you, emanating from your innermost being. It, you, need to, you need to settle this question before we get out of Romans 7. Is doing God's will the joy of your heart, as the psalmist says? 
Do you delight in obeying God's law more than you delight in serving your idols, your sin? Do you long to glorify God in your body more than you long to serve the cravings of your body? Which of your competing desires goes the deepest? What is your truest joy and delight? Do you delight in sin in your innermost being? Or can you say with the Apostle Paul, I delight in the law of God in my inner person? If you identify with the Apostle Paul, then you identify with the conflict in verses 21 to 23. The inner conflict in Paul the, and the inner conflict in every Christian, every true believer that's here today, is a conflict between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Those are the words that Paul uses, good and evil in that, in that verse. And, and Paul says in verse 21 that when he wants to do good, evil's right there, pulling him off track. It's, it's like this unending tug-of-war battle going on inside of him. When Paul wants to keep his car on the straight, narrow road that has shoulders and, and a deep ditch on each side, Evil's always riding shotgun, always present in the front seat with Paul, always trying to grab the wheel and steer him into the sin ditches. Paul doesn't allow us to think lightly of our sin and its ways and its schemes and its influence. Paul doesn't allow us to maintain a low view of our sin problem at all. There's nothing cute or innocent or admirable about our indwelling sin, our sinful proclivities. Sin is evil, and it is the enemy. You shouldn't think that it's adorable when the indwelling sin of your children and grandchildren manifests itself. It's evil, and it will take them to hell if they never learn to hate it and slay it. The evil within is ever-present. Paul says in verse 21 that it's present with me. It's, it's, it, it goes wherever he goes. It rides in the car with him. It goes on road trips with him. It goes to bed with him. It goes to church with him. It shows up when Paul's doing his devotionals, when he's meditating on Scripture and praying, even as Thomas Akempis said, when I'm praying even. Sin is a crouching lion that never stops lurking, never stops maneuvering, never stops looking for an opportunity to pounce on you and to devour you. It's prowling in the weeds beside you as you walk on the path. Remember from last week what, what, what God told Cain when he was in the grip of sin. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The sin that crouched at Cain's door hasn't gone anywhere. It was, it was crouching at the door of Cain's heart. It's crouching at the door of your heart and my heart. It's waiting to spring into action and to devour us when we least expect it. The difference between Cain and Paul, though, is that Cain didn't experience the inner conflict that Paul does. Because Cain didn't desire to do good in his inner man, as Paul does. Paul says in verse 21 that he wants to do good. Now, I, I, it's possible to say those words, I want to do good, 
and not mean it, like I, more like I want to want to do good. But Paul means it, and it's true. He wants to do good. This want to inside of Paul is a spirit-empowered want to. It's a strong force. And, and for Paul, it's the over, overall dominating force. He's not saying that he'd like to want to do good. No, he wants it, and he, and he wants it tenaciously. And, and, the re, and, and the reason for this is that God has taken out his old heart of stone and given him a new heart of flesh, and on that new law, he's written his law indelibly. And, this is the, and so now this new spirit, this new heart, this new law is driving Paul. And again... The proof is in the pudding. He wants to do good so badly that he hates nothing more than doing evil. His internal desire to do good instead of evil is so strong that he continually becomes less sinful and more holy, less driven by his flesh and more driven by the Spirit, less wretched and more righteous. Now, if Paul had said this, I, I want this, I want to do good, but there was no evidence then Paul would be lying. It would be a false statement. But Paul is becoming more like Jesus. And that's what happens when they want to really is inside of you. There was probably a part of Cain who wanted to, that, that wanted to do what, what was right, what was good. Cain had a conscience. Okay, He had a conscience. He experienced guilt and, and shame, the shame of sin. Perhaps there was a part of him that didn't want to sin. That's normal. That, that's just what it means to be human in God's image and to have his law on the conscience. But there was no conflict, no war, because the law wasn't written on his heart. There was no war or conflict inside of Cain because he didn't know God and he didn't delight in God's law. Whatever sorrow and regret... Cain felt over his sin was not the kind of sorrow and regret that leads to repentance and life. That's the point. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 that there are two kinds of sorrow, two kinds of sorrow for sin, the kind that leads to salvation and the kind that leads to death. Two very different kinds of sorrow, and there's no overlap, really. They're, they're, they're just two different species of sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. And he's talking to members of the church at Corinth who have this worldly sorrow. And he tells them later in this same book that they need to make sure that they are even actually in Christ, that they know God, that they are saved. Perhaps if, as we've studied Romans 7, you've wondered if the conflict that Paul describes here exists in you. Do you possess that deep desire that Paul had to do good? Do you delight in doing God's will in your inner person? Well, it's, there's, all, there's all kinds of room here in asking these questions for both self-deception and overly introspective uh, criticism of one's self, right? 
You can lack assurance when you should have it. And you can have assurance when you should lack it. So these are difficult things to search out in ourselves. But we still have to ask the questions because Paul did. He forced, for example, the Corinthians to ask these very, this very kind of question. Are you like Cain who regretted doing evil but had no power to resist it because there was no conflict in him, no dominant desire to do good, no new nature to combat the old sinful nature that he inherited from his dad? Adam, the best way to determine whether there's a real fight, a real conflict, a real war going on really is to apply the 2 Corinthians 7.10 test is what I call it. Let me read it again. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Everyone has sorrow over their sins at some level. That's the, that's the norm, right? Maybe you can find an exception. That's the norm. Cain did. King Saul did more than once. Felt bad when he, you know, trying to kill David. Oops, did it again. But he felt bad. Judas was bitterly, uh, he, he wept bitterly over his sin right before he went headlong into hell. But the sorrow of these men didn't bring repentance and salvation. Their worldly sorrow only produced more sin and eventually led to their eternal spiritual death, as far as we know. King Saul expressed worldly sorrow over his sin, but King David, on the other hand, showed godly sorrow over his sin, and it produced repentance that led to salvation. Judas shed tears of worldly sorrow after he betrayed Christ, but Peter cried tears of godly sorrow after he denied Jesus three times, and it produced repentance that led to salvation. And we see the fruit in the post-resurrection Peter. Is your sorrow over your sin godly or worldly? That's the question. In other words, does it bring repentance, growth, change, or does it just make you feel bad? Feeling bad about your sin isn't the same as godly sorrow, and that's not what Paul is talking about here in Romans 7 at all. Just, I hate this, feel bad about it. That's not where it leads Paul to just feel bad. It leads to repentance. And that feeling bad won't save you on judgment day. It's only godly sorrow if it bears fruit in keeping with repentance. It's only godly sorrow if it leads to a change that bears fruit. What you need to know is that if, if there's no godly sorrow, there's no real conflict going on in you. Because the conflict that Paul's talking about ends in repentance and sanctification. And if there's no conflict, conflict taking place between your regenerated mind and your unregenerated members of your body, if there's no civil war raging within you, between good and evil, between the Holy Spirit and the flesh, between your sinful desires and your holy desires, then you need to repent, receive Jesus, and be born again. You need to become a new creation with a new dominant desire 
and a new spiritual trajectory. You need to repent of your dead faith and unite yourself to Jesus by means of a living, active, obedient faith. Now, it's true that only God's Spirit can accomplish what I just said in anyone, in you, in me, anyone. Only He can give you the new birth that you need, that we all need, to be saved. To, to escape hell and to enter into the kingdom of God, as Jesus puts it in John 3. God has to give the new birth. He's the progenitor, the, the, the father of the children that are born again in Christ. But at the same time, God never turns anyone away. It's, it's illegitimate to think that you can stand and blame God for not giving you what you need. He never turns anyone away. And Jesus said that he would never drive away anyone who comes to him in faith, in humility, in godly sorrow, in living obedient faith, in, in a deep inner desire to do his Father's will. So after Paul clarifies the conflict in verses 21, 22, and the first half of 23, he notes at the end of verse 23, that sometimes sin gains the upper hand and takes him into captivity. The second point on your outline is captivity. Paul is, Paul is winning the war. He's not constantly in this kind of captivity in the way that he was before he became a Christian. He's winning the war, but he doesn't win every battle. Sometimes the conflict leads to what he... The, calls captivity. That's the metaphor he's using here to describe this, this going back into the, his old ways and old thoughts, his covetousness in particular. Remember the sin, the central sin he's thinking about is covetousness, which really, we, as we talked about, covers all the sins in a way. But I see another law in my members warring or waging war against the law of my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin that is in my members. Let's make sure that we realize what Paul isn't saying here. He's not saying that the Christian life is characterized by a defeated captivity to sin in the way it is it was before conversion to Christ. He's not saying that a Christian will be in bondage to the same sins for years on end with no growth, no change, no transformation, no repentance, no sanctification. Let's think for a minute about the difference between a, a saved person and an unsaved person. And let's, let's just use Paul's captivity metaphor and consider the difference between a regenerated person, a saved person, and an unregenerated person, an unsaved person. Regenerated means born again, reborn. On the one hand, the unregenerated person is always in captivity. He or she has never experienced liberation from sin in this life. Sin doesn't take that person into captivity as Paul, that's the verb Paul uses here, taking into captivity. Sin doesn't take that person into captivity because that person never left captivity. His captivity is continuous and uninterrupted. On the other hand, the regenerated person who knows God, who's united to Christ, who's forgiven of his or her sins, has been liberated 
When you've been freed from sin's penalty, you've been forgiven, you've also been freed from its power. You've been liberated from its power, from the dominating power of sin. There's still a power, an influence, we might call it, inside of you, but it's not a dominating power. And yet, as verse 23 says, sometimes this weakened power, the weakened power of sin in the believer, gains a foothold in the Christian's heart and drags him back into a form of captivity that sometimes feels a lot like the old captivity that that we have been truly rescued from. So you may be wondering, well, how do I know which kind of captivity I'm experiencing? How do I determine whether I'm a Cain or a Paul, a King Saul or a King David, a Judas or a Peter, both of whom wept bitterly after their sin? Is the captivity I experience continuous and uninterrupted because I've never really been liberated? Or is my captivity something that I'm taken back into from a place of freedom because I truly have been liberated from sin's dominating power? Well, here's what, that's, again, this is hard, these are hard questions, right? It, you, you must answer them with prayer, with open Bible, with an honest heart. But here's one way to help you think through this. For yourself, whenever you find yourself as a captive to sin, as, as, as sin's prisoner, as we all do, is it always the same prison, the same prison cell, the same four windowless walls and the same musty smell, the same darkness and the same prison guards standing just outside your cell? You see, unbelievers are always in solitary confinement in a high security prison. Their conditions are always dark and severe and hopeless. They, they don't even know how to dream of escaping from their captivity. They don't even know what that concept means. They, tr- they don't, certainly don't truly want it. Believers, on the other hand, as they grow in grace, I'm trying to use Paul's metaphor here. You have to, you know, it, it breaks down at some point. But believers, on the other hand, as they grow in grace, experience less bondage less captivity, less darkness, less severe prison conditions because they sin less, right? We never become sinless, but we do sin less. And they, they sin less than they, used, less than they used to. And because sin no longer rules over them as it once did, in the same way it once did, with the same power that it once did. And because of that difference, there's change, there's growth, there's repentance. There's movement by God's grace. And yet, Paul keeps bringing us back to the the reality that we have to make sure we come back to. As long as the believer lives, he'll never outgrow being taken into captivity by sin. The regenerated person is always winning the war and will win the war because of Christ. Christ will win the war. So the regenerated person is always winning the war in Christ, always growing in godliness, always increasing in repentance, but he doesn't win every battle, and he regularly finds himself as a captive to sin. Well, this measurable situation, and that's, by the way, what the word wretched, behind the word wretched is this idea of not just wretched sinfulness, but the misery that comes with the the sinful wretchedness. 
that this miserable situation of conflict and captivity routinely leads the believer to a crisis point. And so the third heading on your outline is crisis. As a Christian, you should repeatedly and frequently reach a crisis point, crisis points, where, you, where you're compelled to cry out, as Paul does in verse 24, wretched man, I, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched woman I am. What a wretched boy I am. What a wretched girl I am. Who will rescue me from this dead body? Body of death is how most translations put it, but the idea here is a, is a dead body. Paul isn't despairing here. He hasn't lost hope. We could say he's, he's kind of throwing up his arms in a way, but not hopelessly, not without faith and hope. He hasn't lost sight of the end. He hasn't lost sight of Christ. But he is frustrated. He's, in, he's intensely dissatisfied with the sin that lives and, and wreaks havoc in his mortal body. And we've, we've heard Paul more than once in Romans refer to the body, the, the mortal body, the, the members of this body. Paul isn't blaming his sin on his physicality, on, on his physical body, right? Paul, Paul has already said more than once that his sin problem resides inside of him. That's the, the kind of language that he uses, is this inside, outside, physical, uh, spiritual kind of uh, language. And, and the sin, when, when he's talking, when he's using those categories, and he doesn't use them absolutely the way some false philosophies do, but when he does use that kind of terminology, the sin is not just externally, it's not just in, in the cells or the, the physicality, it's, it's inside. It, he said it lives in me at one point. His body that God created isn't itself the problem. At the same time, he knows that at the very moment he sheds this old decaying body, either at death or at the Lord's return, Paul knows at that very moment when he sheds this body, he'll be completely free from the presence of sin. Our new bodies and the new creation will be free of sin and death completely. Not a trace. They'll only know righteousness and life. But these bodies, the, the bodies of this old creation, are racked with sin and death. Diseased, plagued by sin and death because they house the sinful nature. They provide shelter to the flesh and its desires. This body, these, the old body, won't ever get away from that. won't ever rid itself of that, the way our new bodies will. Because the old Adam still resides in these bodies, lives inside of these bodies, Paul calls them dead bodies, bodies of death. And until we're delivered from these dead bodies... We won't be as free as we'd like to be from the influence, the presence, the weakened power, but power nonetheless of sin. Paul uses a strong word to describe himself. 
wretched. Is that, is he being too hard on it? Is that, is that sound right to you? Would you call Paul wretched? How can one of the holiest men in world history accurately describe himself as wretched? Is this false humility? Wouldn't it be better if he'd called himself holy? That's how we think of Paul, right? A holy man. Kind of like, you know, when, when Peter in his sermon at Pentecost refers to the, uh, the holy men of old, the prophets. That would, that, would be, that would make more sense to us. Well, Paul is holy. He is also one of the holy men of old. Paul's both holy and wretched. Okay, it's both. It's not either or, it's both and. And the holier he gets, the more aware he becomes of his wretchedness. The more like Jesus you become, the more you realize how far away from moral and spiritual perfection you are. The closer you get to the glorious light, the better you can see all the wickedness that contaminates you. And as you draw close to the light, you'll regularly think to yourself, if you know God, what a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from this dead body? Who will deliver me from this sin-infested body? Who will save me from the presence of sin in my members, in my heart, in my soul? These, these crisis moments when you gain greater clarity about the extent of your sinfulness, when you realize that it's even worse than you ever thought, these moments would be too much for you to bear if you, if you didn't know the gospel, if it, if it were not for the gospel consolation in the next verse. The fourth heading on your outline is consolation. Consolation means relief, comfort. And here in verse 25, Paul comforts himself and he comforts us with the gospel by assuring us that someone... There is someone who will rescue us from the presence of sin. Now, Paul's question in verse 24 was, who will rescue me? Who's going to deliver me? Who will set me free from the sin that I can't get away from as long as I'm in this body? Paul's misery is great, and his question is a recognition that he can't pull himself out of the gutter. He can't pull himself out of the muck, out of his misery, out of the mire. He's stuck. He can't do it. He needs someone outside of himself to rescue him from his miserable wretchedness. He needs someone who is spiritually stronger, someone who doesn't have the civil war, a, a civil war being fought inside of him, someone whose spiritual innards are not in conflict, someone who doesn't have a law of sin waging war against the law of his mind. You see, Paul, by asking the question this way, is confessing, acknowledging that he doesn't have the spiritual resources to deliver himself from the miserable situation he's in, and neither do you. You have to look elsewhere. 
However, there is someone elsewhere. So there's hope. You're not left hopeless just because you can't do it yourself. There is someone who can rescue us not only from sin's penalty, from, from damnation, from hell, and sin's power, the dominating power, but also from sin's very presence, from its presence altogether. I thank God, Paul says, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now remember, Paul's question in verse 24 was in the future tense. Who will, who is going to rescue me from this dead body? And since the question was in the future tense, we should understand that the answer in verse 25 is also implicitly in the future tense. Paul isn't saying, I thank God who has rescued me through Jesus Christ. He's not saying, I thank God who is rescuing me right now through Jesus Christ. Of course, it's, of course it's true that God has saved Paul in the past and God is saving Paul in the present. And that's part of how he knows that God will save him in the future. But that's not specifically, the, the past and the present are not specifically or primarily what Paul's giving thanks for in verse 25. No, Paul's claiming something, he's claiming a promise about the future. He's anticipating his future redemption, his future glory, when God will give Paul a new body and a perfected spirit, neither of which will be poisoned or stained by sin. Paul's looking forward to that future day of redemption, as, as he calls it in the book of Philippians. And he's giving thanks for it now. I thank God who will rescue me. And he'll rescue me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is a good time to, re, to remind us all that if you're a Christian, your salvation takes place in all three of the tenses. God saved you in the past from sin's penalty. God is saving you in the present from sin's power, dominating power. And one day in the future, God will save you from sin's presence. The three, the three biblical theological words are justification, sanctification, and glorification. Your justification happened when God declared you to be righteous in his, his presence. It was when God regenerated your heart and credited the righteousness of Jesus to your spiritual bank account so that his righteousness is now yours simply by trusting in him and being united to him. That's what happened in the past when you were saved, when you placed saving faith in Jesus. Your sanctification is your ongoing growth in repentance and obedience. It's your becoming more and more like Jesus in the present, right now, today, this week. And then finally, your glorification is what will happen on the last day when God gives you a new body that's just like the resurrected body of our Lord. And all three of those come as a package. You can't have one without the other two. And if you have one, you have the other two. The end of the first sentence in verse 25 seems like it would have been a great place for Paul to conclude this section of Scripture, right? Look at that first sentence in verse 25. Come on, Paul, let's end on a high note on the mountain peak of, of our future glorification. A note of 
praise and thanksgiving and hope about the future, the future aspect of our salvation in Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there. I, I might have stopped there. Um, but under the inspiration of the Spirit, he adds one more sentence, ending with a, a, hard, nose, a hard dose of reality. In his, in his concluding remark, he brings us back to the continuing conflict that every Christian experiences throughout the entirety of his life on this earth. So then, Paul says, in my mind, I myself, there's emphasis there, I myself am a slave to the law of God. But in my flesh, you know, my other I, the other me, I am a slave to the law of sin. So in his truest self, his, his, in his new nature, the one that's going to last for eternity, the Paul that's going to be, in, be here in, in a billion years, he's a slave to the law of God, but in that old Adam that he, that, that's been crucified in Christ, that's being put to death, and that one day will be completely put to death by God at the, at the end. So he's serving God in his mind. He serves sin in his flesh. Rather than ending on the mountaintop, Paul takes us back into the valley. <clears throat> back into the, the shadow of death to remind us that we're still in the fight. We're still at war and we're still, we're still slugging it out with sin. So as I close here, let me speak to those who are in Christ, to, to those who know God, to Christians who have been born again, walking with Christ. You're never going to be able to retire from the spiritual warfare that's going on inside of you. It's not like being in other militaries where you, you, you fight and then you get to retire someday. You'll never reach a point where you can stop fighting and just coast into glory. The deliverance from sin's presence that you long for won't happen in this life. This means that until this life is over, there will be a dangerous enemy on the loose inside of you, present with you, going wherever you go. Its desire is to have you. It hopes to gain mastery over you. It, it wants to take you all the way to hell with it. But you must rule over it through Jesus Christ, your Lord. The Lord will rescue you from sin's presence in the future. And the Lord who will, that Lord who will rescue you from sin's presence in the future is the same one and the only one who can rescue you from sin's presence in the present. Let's ask God to help us to fight the good fight. Father, we thank you for giving us hope, a hope that rests not in our ability and our doing and what we can accomplish 
and our strength and our resources, but a hope that rests in you and in you alone and in what you've promised, what you've promised to accomplish in us. We claim that promise that you will continue what you've begun in us and that you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Oh, how we look forward to that. We long for that day. We desire it to come sooner than later. Increase that desire in us. Increase in us the desire to obey you. Increase in us the delight in your law. Give us greater joy in obeying what you have to say, in following Christ, in doing your will. We pray that you would accomplish this in us because it glorifies Jesus, because it glorifies you. And so we ask for it in his name, in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.